0: Our first scripture reading today comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 1 through 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father in law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why this bush is not burned? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see him, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve the God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all the generations. And our sermon text is uh, from the book of Joshua. This is Joshua chapter 5. As soon as all the king of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At the time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the son of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gilbeath Hariloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who had come out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had been come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness until all the nations, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he had not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in the place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcision of the whole nation had finished, they remained in their place in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th 14th day of the month and all the evening of the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, of leavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased that day, and they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to this servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from this feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Uh, So uh, we are continuing our study of the book of Joshua. And particularly we've been focusing on issues of identity. And just to give a brief recap, uh, we began in chapter 1, where the focus was on the themes of obedience and unity. Uh, The Israelites are in the process of moving from a formerly enslaved nomadic people to a free and settled nation. And what God wants the the Israelites to know right from the beginning is that their identity is not necessarily based on ancestry or geography, but rather the covenant and the teachings of the Torah. In chapter 2, we came to this amazing story of Rahab that completely challenges any Israelite ideas of us and them by presenting us with this virtuous Canaanite woman. Her story is actually at odds with the teachings of Deuteronomy where oaths, intermarriage, and salvation were forbidden to the Canaanites. And this is one of the first hints that the book of Joshua may be a bit more complex work than we would have thought. Because here Rahab purposely subverts the themes of unity and obedience in chapter 1. Now, the point I have been making throughout this is that this is an unworkable inconsistency. Instead, we should see the text as forcing us to accept this contradiction so that we can work out what it means for our identity and even what it means to follow the Torah. Uh, We moderns, we really hate this, but it's actually very biblical to have contradictory principles juxtaposed with one another. If you want a good example, read the book of Proverbs and then read the book of Ecclesiastes right after it. It's really hard to jar the two. Uh, but that's what the Bible does to us. And, you know, that actually, I think, makes kind of sense because uh, we who live in the real world know uh, that life is pretty complicated. It requires wisdom rather than simple rule following. And I think the justification of these contradictory ideas it was, is what makes the book of Joshua so interesting because it challenges, to, uh, challenges us to go beyond simplistic thinking. Instead, toward what we would call wisdom. Now, if we look at the setting of our passage today in Joshua 5, we find that the Israelites are on the other side of the Jordan River, now in the promised land of Canaan at a place called Gilgal. Now, this is a great chapter. Uh, I really like this because uh, what we will find is another uh, episode of identity formation And it will be followed immediately by this incredibly subversive event that's absolutely bonkers, okay? And I've always been fascinated by this chapter. And in fact, it's probably one of my favorite parts of the Bible. So I'm excited to look at this. Uh, So so let's look at chapter 5. So the passage, first off, uh, begins with a report from two groups of inhabitants of the land of Canaan. Uh, The Amorites and the Canaanites And it's probable that the Amorites uh, Refer to the people who live in the highlands Near the Jordan River And the Canaanites are the people That live in the uh, coastal plain But in any event we are informed That uh, news of the Israelites' miraculous crossing uh, Of the Jordan River have reached them And that their hearts melted away And that there's no longer any spirit in them Now, already we have a hint of this subversive nature of Joshua. See, Joshua loves to mess with you. That's kind of what it does. And if you listen to this report, it should sound really familiar to you, Uh, especially if you heard our sermon from uh, about Rahab in chapter two. So the words melted away and no spirit left have already been used in this book. Someone's already said those. Okay, does anybody remember who it is? It's Rahab. It's Rahab the Canaanite whose words are echoed in this report. And so this is really significant. Uh, The narrator repeats these words of the Canaanite Rahab as describing the current situation. And remember that Rahab is actually uh, echoing uh, Moses' words in Deuteronomy. Uh, You know, like the Moses, like the Moses from the Torah that the Israelites are supposed to be obedient to. And as we saw last week, Israel crossed the Jordan River precisely because they were obedient. And the result is the confirmation of the words of Moses, but confessed through a Canaanite prostitute, which is crazy. Because what Joshua is doing is purposely uh, melding Uh, the Canaanite Rahab with the covenant people of Israel Uh, so again we see in the book of Joshua boundaries and distinctions becoming blurred and the question we are forced to ask when this happens is what defines God's people? is it simply participating in a river crossing? or is there place for others who proclaim Yahweh's glory? And while the first verse kind of leaves this question hanging in the air, we immediately move to an account of two rituals of identity formation that are central to the Israelites. So again, we see the central role of identity and us and them and boundaries plays in Joshua. That's pretty much what this uh, book is about. So we learn in verse 2 through 9 that the new generation of Israelites who were born in the wilderness and not in Egypt have never been circumcised. Uh, and so the Israelites are instructed to grab some flint knives Awesome And correct this uh, Now this is probably not a move I would suggest If you're getting ready for a big battle But that's what the gods, uh, God, command, God commanded the Israelites to do Now for some reason That probably made a little more sense in the ancient world Circumcision was an important sign Of what it meant to be part of God's people And this ritual of circumcision dates back all the way to Genesis 17, uh, when it was given to Abraham as a sign of the covenant in which Abraham was promised land and descendants. From then on, all of Abraham's male descendants were commanded to accept this sign of circumcision as a visible symbol of that promise. It marked the Israelites as a separate people, and, of course, it was also uh, performed on the organ of reproduction to remind the Israelites that they and their descendants were in view. Now, it's kind of strange that the people weren't circumcised at the uh, at this point, given the uh, importance of circumc- circumcision. However, it, it's probably just a, a practice that lapsed while the people were in Egypt. Uh, now, uh There is something kind of interesting. Uh, You may not know. uh, The Israelites were not the only people who practiced circumcision. Actually, the the Egyptians did as well, although it was quite different. Um, We actually have uh, a hieroglyphic uh, dating back to the 24th century BC that depicts this practice, okay? Uh, So be glad I do not know how to do screen sharing to show you that. But uh, Egyptian circumcision was a bit different. Uh, first of all, it was performed as a rite of passage at puberty, uh, not shortly after birth like it was in Israel. And second, it was not a complete removal of the foreskin, but just a notch. Uh, so in any event, uh, circumcision was uh, a way to separate Israelites from non-Israelites and Jew from Gentile. Now, what we know from the history of Israel is that this becomes quite controversial the Greeks and the Romans for example totally detested the practice they uh, viewed it as barbaric and it was a major point of contention uh, during the uh, Maccabean revolt when the Jews rebelled against their Greek rulers and that's why it was such a big deal like when we come to the New Testament and Paul challenges this practice but Another reason uh, for uh, this mass circumcision is so that the Israelites could celebrate Passover because uh, the only men, who, only men who had been circumcised could participate in the ritual, the Passover ritual. And, of course, we all know how uh, central uh, the Passover celebration is to the Israelites. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to, uh, you know, maybe, maybe in April we'll be able to uh, meet back again inside the church and we'll have another Seder uh, and, and talk about Passover. But we know it's very important. Uh, participation in the Passover meal is actually meant to be, be viewed as if the participant were actually participating in the Exodus. Uh, and so again, we see another ritual where separation from Egypt was in view. Uh, we have another episode, uh, another powerful and important episode of identity formation. But which is why Uh, You know, this makes this final part of this passage absolutely bonkers because this is what I want to concentrate on. I mean, you know, circumcision and Passover being so important to identity, you know, we would kind of expect uh, uh, Joshua to make a big deal about this. If we're going to be obedient, if we're going to follow Deuteronomy, let's get first things first. Um, You know, we did an awesome job of crossing the river, you know, with the priest and the Ark of the Covenant and doing all that right. let's, uh, Let's observe our major rituals right. So that makes sense. But here we have uh this new generation of god's people and now they're totally separate from egypt you know the gilgal means the reproach of egypt has been rolled away so finally we're off to a new start We have a generation who has not spent their whole life fighting with Moses and wishing they could go back to Egypt every five minutes and, you know, go back to those leaks they had back in Egypt, you know. Uh, We have a generation whose spies went out and came back with actually like a a fairly faithful report, although it's basically they just uh, uh, did what Rahab said. But uh, still, we have a generation who has successfully and obediently crossed the Jordan River. And now they stand ready to take their land. And now their great leader, Joshua, goes up to take a look at the enemy fortress of Jericho that stands in their way. And so this is where I think the story gets absolutely crazy. So immediately, Joshua is confronted by this unknown figure Uh, with his sword unsheathed. Now, a drawn sword is very threatening. And so Joshua asks, what side are you on? Are you friend or are you foe? And the figure answers Joshua's question simply as no. He doesn't declare a side, but he does reveal his identity. He is the commander of Yahweh's army. Then he further confirms his divine origin by declaring that this place where they are standing is holy ground. And so Joshua needs to act with appropriate reverence by removing his sandals. And so Joshua does so. And that's it. Nothing else. In the scene. Chapter stops. So Just a guy with a sword who happens to be the commander of God's literal divine heavenly army who tells Joshua two things. I'm not your opponent, but I'm also not your ally. And by the way, this is a holy place, so you should take off your sandals. And so when you read this, you're kind of left hanging here, I think. I mean, what the heck? Uh, And if you think about it, it becomes even crazier, okay? Okay. So think about this, in the ancient world, gods are always messing around and involved in battles and wars. They're always taking sides and turning the battle based on who they choose to fight for. So uh, think back to high school uh, when you read the Iliad, right? Like most of the Iliad is about some, this God or goddess deciding that he or she likes something the Trojans did or doesn't like something the Greeks did and taking sides and that side they take starts winning. That's like the whole story of the Iliad, right? So as a person existing in the culture of this time, when we read this story about encountering a divine warrior, specifically after an account of people performing Appropriate divinely ordained rituals, we think we know what's going to happen next because this is a common sequence of events in the war literature of the ancient Near East. The divine being is a message from above that the whole heavenly armies have been mobilized and they're getting ready to fight. And so everyone can be ass- uh, encouraged because victory is ex- assured. With God and the divine armies on your side, you will absolutely triumph. Except that's not what happens here. Uh, the divine warrior does not do any of these things we would expect. His response to Joshua's question is ambivalent. It's ambiguous. He declares no allegiance. He refuses to take a side. And that's not how this story is supposed to go at all. So if we are ancient people hearing this story for the first time, we are meant to be shot by it which means that the book of Joshua is trying to tell us something here. So what's it trying to tell us? See, what Joshua is trying to tell us here is that Yahweh is not a tribal warrior God like every other God in the ancient world. And this scene is inserted here at this particular place in the story to emphasize the idea that no matter how obedient his people are, no matter what rituals they observe and not how well they do them, Yahweh will not fulfill this expected role. Yahweh is not there simply to be used to give his people victory in battle. And he will not allow them to reduce him to that kind of God. Yahweh is more than that. Yahweh is holy. Now, that's what you learn from this story if you read this story with the cultural assumptions of the ancient Near East. Once again, we find that the book of Joshua is being deeply subversive. However, you also learn something else if you read this story specifically as an Israelite. Uh, Notice in the sparse details of the account uh, that basically seems to be intent on withholding information of us, we are giving one detail. Joshua is commanded by the divine being to remove his sandals because this place is holy. So as an Israelite, when you hear that, you instantly connect this passage to Exodus 3, which just so happens to be our other scriptural text today. Now, if you think back to Exodus 3, what happens? Moses has fled from Egypt. He's living as a shepherd in the land of Midian when he stumbles on a bush that is on fire but is not burned up. And from this bush, the angel of the Lord appears and instructs Moses to remove his sandals because this is holy ground. The angel of the Lord then tells Moses God is going to use him to free the people from slavery in Egypt and to bring them back to the land of Canaan. Moses is concerned though that the people will not follow him and so he asked God to reveal his name so that Moses can go to the people with something that will give him some sort of credibility with his people. Because see, in the ancient world, knowing the name of a God was uh, was important. It was a form of control, of possession. It demonstrated that you had access to the divine. And how does God respond to Moses? He reveals his name as Yahweh which tell which Exodus tells us means I am that I am. Now, that's different uh, because I mean the first thing you notice about the response is I am. I mean that's like a just like a verb and it's like not a very specific verb. I mean you know it's one of those to be verbs which is like kind of abstract. Uh, but it's even more complicated in Hebrew. Because the construction here doesn't even allow you to figure out what tense the verb's in. In other words, it can be equally translated as, I will be that I will be, or I have been as I have been, or really any combination of, I am that I have been, or I will be as I am. So, if you think about all of this, and you think about God's response here, as a response to Moses' desire for control, you realize how brilliant an answer God is giving here. You see, God gives Moses a name, but it's a name that gives Moses nothing to hold on to. It's so broad and expansive and transcended that it shatters any notion that God could be contained in a simple formula that would allow anyone to have any understanding or control over him. Now, If we think about this, if we think about this principle that's being communicated here in Exodus, and then we apply it to our passage in Joshua, we can begin to make sense of this abrupt ending of this interaction between the commander of the Lord's army and Joshua. You see the parallel here. Both stories have a divine being representing Yahweh, speaking to a leader of God's people, in an instruction for the leader to remove his sandals because the location is holy. And by leaving us hanging here, Joshua 5 forces us to begin to think about this interaction in light of Exodus 3. This is a common Hebrew rhetorical device. Sometimes it's called ellipses or gapping. And it's very clever because what it does is it exploits our desire for closure. We want to know what happens. We want an ending for a story. We don't like being left hanging. Nature abhors a vacuum. We want an ending. And when we aren't given one, it forces us to fill in the gaps here. Uh, And so we engage this text more deeply and more thoughtfully than we would Uh, by searching for a way to resolve it it's really really cool it's one of the reasons I love studying this stuff but by pointing us to Exodus 3 the text gives us a hint of how we might fill in the gap just as God will not be reduced to a simple name God will not be reduced to taking sides no person and no people and no army will use God for their own agenda God does not work like that. God is bigger than that. We don't get to put God in a box, no matter how good or obedient we are. That's what Joshua is trying to tell you here. Now... What I want to do now, I want to share. This is one of my favorite verses that uh, in the Old Testament, and I think it really drives home at this point. I was like totally blown away when I first came across this. Okay, and so it's in the book of Amos. It's actually like Amos chapter nine. You know, because one day you're just like reading Amos chapter nine, and you know, you get an epiphany. Now, I would have made it one of the readings, but I thought I would scare everyone away having three Old Testament texts as a reading. But here, here's uh, here's how the verse goes: The Lord God of hosts he who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwell more all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile in Egypt who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault on the earth who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out onto the surface surface of the earth the Lord is his name okay so here we get this idea about name and identity right now listen to this are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of the earth, declares the Lord? Did I not bring you up out of Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Captor and the Syrians from Kur? You hear that? God declares his greatness and power, and then tells Israel, his chosen people, that they need to check themselves. They may be chosen, but they are still equivalent to the Cushites. God may have brought them out of Egypt, but that's not the only Exodus event God has been involved in. God also brought the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr. I don't know historically what those events are, but it does raise the question, whose side is God on? And what God says in Amos here in chapter nine is it turns out it's not just Israel, but Cush and Philistia and Syria. And so the point for us in the church is that we don't get to reduce God to our side. We need to remember that God is bigger and God is more expansive and he's greater And God cannot be contained by any one group, or nationality, or ethnicity, or school of thought, or denomination, or non-denomination, or even his very own people, even when they're being obedient. And the Old Testament has a word for this concept. It's called holy. This is part of what it means for God to be holy. We might use a different word for it. We might call it transcendent. But in either case, what it means is we have to be very, very careful whenever we think we can simply claim God for himself. And we do this all the time in the church. And we need to repent of our arrogance. And remember that when we ask whose, God's, whose side God is on in our, in our ideological battles or whatever, his response to us is, no, no. We don't get to baptize our agenda and declare it godly just because we think we are on the right side. It is we who serve God. God does not serve us. We need to always remember that. God tells us, I am that I am. We don't tell God who he is. You know, it was great. This was another one of these great things uh, that wasn't planned. Uh, but uh, look at the, the words of the hymn Lucia picked out at Be Thou My Vision. Uh, you know, in the first verse, it says, Not be all else to me, save that thou art. You know, it, it's, it's again uh, emphasizing this independence of God. God is who he is. And we don't get to define that. Our identity does not define God. We don't get to define who is us. And we don't get to define who is them and then claim God is for us. God tells us this is not how it works. The Lord touches the earth and it melts. That is who God is. And he has revealed that identity to us in the burning bush. And he's revealed it in Joshua five and he's revealed it in Amos. And where God most clearly identifies himself is in Jesus Christ, who also spends his entire ministry refusing to baptize anyone's agenda. It is Jesus who identifies with shepherds and prostitutes and fishermen and tax collectors. Jesus spends his whole ministry opposing all the right people and siding with all the wrong people. He refuses to play any of their power games. He preaches love of enemy and declares that anyone who is in need is a neighbor he makes Samaritans the hero of the story and he finds those with the greatest faith are among Canaanite women and Roman soldiers he forgives thieves and he asks forgiveness for those who crucify him and so the story of Jesus and the story of Joshua and the story of Amos and the story of Exodus is that in the kingdom of God we find that there is no us versus them, for all are one in Christ Jesus.